So we're in a series at the moment that is called When Jesus Meets Someone Like You. What we're looking at are people in the Bible who met Jesus face to face. We're looking at what Jesus offered to those people when they met him face to face. And then we're asking, in order for us to encounter Jesus like that, what response is required? So I would love to invite you to stand with me today for the reading of the Bible. We are in Mark chapter 10, verse 13 to 16. Mark 10, verse 13 to 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So it's a real privilege for me to be in here, in the bamboo room, with you all at this point in the service today. It's actually quite rare that I am in the service at this point, um, because I have, as I said, my staff role is overseeing weekly outreach ministries. And one of those is our children's church, where we aim to give children an experience of church that is relevant to their age. And the other is the 11 plus, which is an incredible ministry that um, I have been so blessed to sit in and watch God grow, which is for teenagers and youth. And the aim is to provide a place for them to ask questions, for them to learn about God and for them to meet fellow Christians so that we can see the work of transformation Jesus is doing in their lives. So um, as I began thinking about what I would present to you today about this passage, the first thought that came to mind for me was what I would do if you were children. So if I read this passage and I was wanting to deliver to you a message that we are just like children and what we would have to do in order to have an encounter with Jesus like this, I would be able to tell you that what happened was that, that children came to Jesus and Jesus embraced them and Jesus loved them, and they loved Jesus. And I would tell you that we are children, and we can come to Jesus, and Jesus loves us, and we can love him. And that would be the end. And then we would play with Play-Doh, and then I'd give you each a chocolate cookie and a little cup of water, and we would have a really nice time. Unfortunately, as I thought about this story, uh, in this room now that kids and youth have left, we are not children. Um, and I actually think when we look at this story, the characters we are more inclined to be like are the disciples rather than the children. And I want to tell you the reason I think we are more inclined to be like the disciples than the children, and that is because of pride. 
And there, there, it, was with, it was with intention that Jesus used children. And Jesus highlighted children here. And it's not the first time. There were many times that Jesus healed children. And actually, just the chapter before this story, Jesus used children. Uh, there was an argument among the disciples. This is from Luke chapter 9, verse 46. There was an argument among the disciples about which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus knew their thoughts, it says. So he took a little child and he placed that child in the middle of the circle. And then he said to them, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who will be the greatest. So the reason children, the reason Jesus brought the children here is because he wanted to demonstrate to us that it can be that simple. We can come to Jesus and Jesus loves us and we can love him. But actually what children often reveal in the presence of us is pride. They actually say children are a great litmus test for pride. Now, I feel like I should make a quick disclaimer here for any parents who are here. This verse is not saying that children are free from pride. Any parent who has, a has had a child cling desperately to something screaming, but I made it and it's mine, knows that pride is a result of our sin nature and even children experience pride. But it's how, in how adults see children, in how we treat children, in how we respond to children, that we can see many of the characteristics of pride highlighted in our own lives. And I want to talk today about just three characteristics of pride that I think children can highlight in us. The reason I think this is very important is because if you are sitting there and you are thinking, this sermon might be really helpful for the other people around me who are really proud, but not me, because I'm not proud, then I want to challenge you. In the Diagnostic Manual of Pride, the very first symptom of the proud is that they do not think they are proud. Um, and actually, I think, I liked this analogy, pride in us has a similar effect to termites. Um, so if anybody has ever been in a house, I grew up in Australia and now I've lived in Malawi and I recently discovered that the, these are two of the places in the world where termites just seem to flourish. Um, if you've ever seen a termite-destroyed house, it can still look almost perfect on the outside. But the moment you tap, even touch the wood, it crumbles because the termites eat from the inside out. Pride is like that in us. We can look like we have it together on the outside and pride can be eating away at our hearts and at our souls. Jesus knew this. This is why Jesus read the thoughts of his disciples about, who was, about them debating who was greater. And this is why Jesus brought that child in because he knew that it was important for us to have a test, for us to have something that highlights that pride. Um, because like when you build a house, it is much better to treat for termites and to maintain keeping termites out 
than to have termites come in and have to start again. So let me tell you three of the characteristics of pride that I think children can highlight for us. The first characteristic of pride I want to call the microscope effect. So anybody who's done any primary or high school biology, I think will have experienced the use of a microscope. A microscope is a tool that makes something very small look big. So for example, a cell, our bodies are made up of cells. There is something even smaller than a cell. A cell has organs. It's crazy stuff, hey? When you use a microscope, you can look at the cell that you couldn't elsewise see with your human eye, and you can even see the parts of that cell because what the microscope does is make something that is very small look big. When pride is in our hearts, it makes us see ourselves who are small in this world as very big. Romans 12.3 actually addresses this idea, this microscope effect, when it says you are thinking of yourselves more highly than you ought. When pride has a microscope effect, it makes us view things that are not the creator as the creator. It makes us view things that are not all powerful as all powerful. And usually those th that thing is ourselves. It claims that we are something that we are not. Pride tells us that we are in control. Pride tells us that we deserve this because we made it. And we see this happening here for the disciples in this story. It's interesting to view it from this point. When I first read this story, I thought, ah, the disciples are being helpful, you know. But let's think about it. The disciples are standing with Jesus. At this point in their walk with Jesus, they know, they believe Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the person that their ancestors longed for. Jesus is the bringing of salvation, and Jesus is the turning point of all of the world. They are standing in his presence. And yet they're out over there on the edges, shooing away the parents with children. They're not standing at his feet, absorbing his every word. They're not asking him, Jesus, how else can we serve you? They're viewing themselves as important and they're trying to, they're trying to prove that they are big, that they are important by taking on this task themselves. Now, many years before I moved to Malawi, I had the great privilege of studying child development. And as part of my studies of child development, I learned some scientific things that astound me whenever I think of them, and I want to share some of them with you. Uh, the first is about the growth of the human brain. I don't know if you've ever done any studies or, or thought about this before. You, at some point in time, were conceived and then you began to develop. You were nothing but something very, very, very small. Then through nine months of your mother bearing you in pregnancy and then through those first four years of life, you developed from being nothing but cells to being a functioning human being who could then walk and talk and learn and run and jump and dance. And in that time, your brain was developing. 
So what, they, what, what studies around brain development have definitely shown us is that the development of a brain is so complex, is so rapid, is so intimate, and is so incredible that we could never fully track or explain it. Our development of technology is nothing, even advanced technology that sometimes seems smarter than us, that sometimes bothers me. Even advanced technology cannot compare to the development of the human brain. So let me try and give you, this is the best analogy I've heard. The development of human brain is like the growing of a forest. I don't know if you've ever stood kind of somewhere up north or even down around Mulanji and just looked out across the forest where it's like just green as far as you can see. The human brain is like that. So in the human brain there are trees, there are clumps of trees, every tree has a branch and then branches have leaves like a forest has, yes? But in the brain there's not only a forest like that. The leaves communicate to each other through electrical pulses they create pathways of electrical pulses that enable you to move. The reason I can speak to you like this is my brain is sending thousands of electrical pulses through the branches, through the leaves, through the incredibly complex forest to enable me to do this. But when you're a baby and you're conceived, the forest is very small. And that forest grows through experience. So it's when you first open your eyes and you saw light that the trees in your brain grew and started sending pathways to register sight. And human uh, and development shows that it's actually only at three to four months of age that we begin to see clearly because our brain has developed those crazy pathways through those branches, through those leaves that are growing. I also think this is a really interesting fact. Human babies are born more immature than any other mammal. So if you look at like a baby cow, I don't know, or a baby elephant, they are generally able to fend for themselves from a very young age. But despite the movie like The Jungle Book suggesting, if you take a human baby and you leave them, they will not survive. A human baby will not be able to find food independently. And even the food they find, their body will not be able to process. A human baby will not be able to recognize, as I said, they can't have clear sight. They can't recognize what is a predator and what is a friend. A human baby can't move independently. A human baby can't get up and walk to KFC. A human baby can't control their bodily impulses. A human baby is utterly dependent on their parent. And that speaks something to God's creation of us. So I want to challenge you. If you are thinking, I don't have the microscope effect, if you have ever thought to yourself, I got this job, I got this promotion because I worked for it because I worked hard and so I deserve it. I wanna challenge you that when you were a tiny baby, there was a parent who picked you up 150 times off the ground and that's how you learned to walk. I wanna challenge you, if you think, if you've ever thought, wow, I spoke well, I think I'm a great speaker. I have taught myself well to speak. 
I want to challenge you that when you were a tiny baby, you had a million communication interactions with someone that fired electrical messages through the growing trees, through the growing branches, through the growing leaves in your brain and developed speech for you. And one thing, if you have ever learned a second language and I am still slowly in the process of learning Chichewa, you will see that a three-year-old will eclipse you in language learning within seconds. I'm still learning the basics, I'm saying zikomo, and that three-year-old over there is forming coherent Chichewa sentences. And I'm like, how can you do that? Because a child's brain, the forest is growing so rapidly. So I want to challenge you, if you have ever thought, I did this because I did it. I deserve this opportunity. I have earned this thing. I made this myself. God gave you gifts. And one of those gifts was every single one of the millions of interactions you had when you were a tiny baby that enabled your brain to develop millions of trees and complex pathways that enable you to do today. Everything that we do, everything that we can do, is a gift from God. The second characteristic of pride that I think children highlight in us, I want to call the telescope effect. Now, a telescope, unlike a microscope, this is like a year nine science lesson, a telescope, unlike a microscope, makes something that is actually very big seem small so that you can see it by the human eye. When I was about 12, there was a comet that passed over Adelaide, Australia, where I lived, and my mum convinced us as a family to stay up late at night for hours of absolutely nothing so that through the telescope we could see that comet as it passed. Now, that comet was some super huge, massive piece of rock that was much bigger than our whole Earth, and it was flying through space millions and millions of kilometers away. Yet we stood on our front garden lawn and we looked through that telescope and we could see it. We could see the rock, we could see the crevices and we could see the stream that was produced behind the comet as it flew rapidly through the atmosphere, through what isn't even atmosphere, through space. What we saw was not the real size of that comet. That comet was huge. What we saw was a tiny image of it. What pride does in our lives, too, is make us see what is truly huge as small so that we can think we fit it within our vision. We see the disciples doing this in this story. It's funny because literally the chapter before, which means that very not long before this story, Jesus has just said, whoever welcomes a little child in my name welcomes me. Jesus has just told the disciples that I am the Messiah, I am the King, I am the creator of the world, and when you welcome that small child, you welcome me. Jesus has just said that these children are big. These the bigness and the beauty of these children is beyond what you comprehend. And yet the disciples are standing there rejecting them. When we reject someone, it is because we do not see 
their value. We reject what does not make contribution to us. So therefore we deem it of no value. But Jesus had clearly said that the children are of value to him. And when we have the telescope effect of pride on our lives, we start valuing the things that are not what God values. And we forget or lose what God values. So this could mean that we begin valuing power and money over relationship. And all you have to do is read Genesis 1 to see many times over that God values relationship. Maybe you've found yourself at work wanting to climb the ladder or the chain of power or get a promotion, but maybe it means that you have to do something that's not terribly cruel but isn't particularly kind to somebody who is smaller than you in that organisation. But God has clearly told us that he values the powerless, he values the poor, he values the disadvantaged, the unimportant, and he shows us through this that he values those who may only make small contributions to our society. I've also worked for many years with disability, and this was something that was profound for me to learn. Maybe a person with disability is not a huge contributor to our society, but it does not mean that God values them less because God values all people. The other thing we must know is that even though we cannot see ourselves as great and huge, God has told us that he values us. Even though we are small, even though there are seven billion others of us walking on the face of the earth, God values us individually. And now I want to share a personal story of my own repent of the telescope effect of pride in my life. I've been really privileged now to be part of the teaching team here at Flood for the last three years. And last November I preached. Um, and as I said, I'm part of the kids' church team, I'm part of the 11-plus team. I try to, three out of four weeks of the month, be leading a different group, a different age group. And I was very convicted because I prepared a sermon and I presented it here and I spent hours in my week preparing this sermon. Hours. I really explored that passage. I thought of examples. I consulted for advice on it. I asked people to join me in prayer for it. And then I stepped down and God said to me, why do you not do that when you teach the four to five-year-olds? And then a fellow 11-plus leader and I were talking. And I said, when was the last time we spent seven hours preparing for a lesson for the 11-plus? And I realized that what I had done was make something that God values and that is very big of small value. I had not rejected it, but I had not respected it to the value that God respects it. I was then really moved and touched when a child came to me and told me of something I had said months ago, almost in passing, 11 plus, 
and the incredible impact that it had on their lives. And then I went the next week to a kids' church and I sat with eight, uh, seven to ten-year-olds and their hunger for knowing God and for knowing the Bible blew me away. And what God has taught me through that is that he values children's ministry and he values youth ministry and he values it whether there are three four-year-olds or whether there is a huge group. And he values it because he values each one of us and he values children because they are the upcoming generation and they will pursue him across their lives. So I have repented of that and uh, set out this year to share with God in a journey of learning to value children and youth as he does. And for any of you who is a parent here, I want to thank you for being willing to send your kid to a kids' church where our leadership team is growing. And we are growing not only in size, but we are growing in what God is teaching us about how we must value what God values. And I think I really liked this saying, when these two characteristics of pride work together, when we view ourselves as very great and when we view what God values as small, we begin to yawn at the stars and fawn at the mirror. We yawn at the beautiful creation God has made while we're busy looking at ourselves. But I want to move on to one more characteristic of pride that I think children highlight in us. I just had an incredible experience of a child highlighting this for me um, that reveals our pride. And this is the dimming effect. And I think the picture that's on the slide should be, you know, in the car there's a rear view mirror and it's got that little tab on the bottom. I don't know if you like me, like I took probably a disproportionately long time to realize what that tab does. So when you push that tab down, it dims the lights that are coming through the back of your window, your back window. Then when you push it up, you can see directly. I think there might be somebody here who's like, oh my gosh, that's what that tab does. <laughs> so that's what that tab does. If you didn't know, that's what that tab does. So when you've got, you know, you're driving at night and there's that truck behind you who's got its high beams on and it's blaring down and you can't see anything in the world except for the massive lights in your rearview mirror. So you flick that thing down and it dims those lights. It doesn't block the mirror, it dims them. I've never worked out how it does that. I just presume that it's magic in the car of design, the design of cars. But I think pride can do this. Pride can flick our mirror down so that what we see is dimmed. Pride can shrink our capacity to experience joy and wonder. And it does this because we focus on ourselves. What pride tells us is that the only enjoyable things are those that will magnify our reputation and our appetite. 
And pride lies to us. It tells us that we will be happier when we exalt ourselves. It tells you if you just get that promotion, you'll be happy. It tells you that your phone is okay, but the next model of phone, that will make you happy. It tells you that even though you have sufficient food at home, that bag of peanut M&Ms that is coming, that's what will make you happy. It tells you that the new hairstyle, once you get that hairstyle, then you'll be happy. It tells you that it's only the things that exalt you, that further you, that increase your reputation or that satisfy your appetite are the things that will make you happy. But I want to warn you that appetite and reputation are hungry monsters and they are never satisfied. When you get that promotion, you just hunger for the next one. And so quickly, the joy of that promotion is dimmed. When you get that new phone, you drop it the next day and the screen is cracked and the joy is gone. But the joy of things that only feed our pride is short-lived and dimmed. It's having that little tab flicked down on our rearview mirror. The reason I think children highlight this is because children experience joy and wonder in a way that we so quickly lose. And I think the reason children do this is because they're quick to see what is a gift to them. The moment I just had, for any of you who know Awema, she was just standing here and she was worshipping. And now Awema doesn't speak, she doesn't have spoken language, but she communicates in other ways. So she was not singing the words, but she was singing in adoration of Jesus. And she has this way of just expressing her love to Jesus that is so beautiful to watch. And she finds such joy in that. And she was not doing that so that we would think she's better. She was not doing that to increase her reputation and she was not doing it simply because she wanted to feel better. She is doing it because I really believe she wants to love God and she is loving God. And I want to give you another example of where children uh, experience delight and awe and wonder at such simple things that I think can remind us that where we, have no, where we remove pride or where pride isn't, we find joy in those things as well. So as I said at the beginning, if you were a children's church, um, we would have said children love Jesus, Jesus loves children, and now let's eat cookies. And the snack time in kids' church has been one that I've really grown to love. I've been amazed, hey? We don't buy fancy cookies for the kids, and yet they love them. <laughs> Um, and they don't love them because they demand we must have a snack time now and I want that brand of snack. They love them because it is a gift that somebody has bought them. They love them because every week a teacher says, let's sit down now and everybody's going to get a cookie. And what happens in all of the classes is the teacher takes the packet around and each child receives a cookie from that teacher. 
and have seen that the delight is not simply in satisfying their appetite. Because I promise you, those cookies are tiny. They're not satisfying anybody's appetite. Um, and nor is taking that cookie making them more important. The joy for them in taking those cookies is that a teacher has bought and given them those cookies as a gift. And I was struck with a moment of this just last week. Uh, Humphreys and I live in NRC, so we're a little bit out of the city, and we were driving in on a Monday morning for a meeting at work. Now, I must admit, we were driving in and running late. Unfortunately, this is far more a common occurrence than I would like to admit, but we were running late. So I was thinking, let's drive a bit faster so that we're less late, so that we can try and protect any semblance of our reputation of being people who honour time that is left. Then as I was passing a place that we call Mango, it just struck me on the right that there is a field of maize there that has grown so beautifully, and it's tall, it's taller than me, and I'm pretty sure it was emitting light. You know how maize does that when it's really healthy? It seems to glow with bright green colour, and it struck me, it's sheer beauty. And it was God breaking through my pride of being self-absorbed about my own time frame and reputation to remind me that when the maize grows, it is a gift from him. And there are other gifts that God gives us that it's only when he removes our pride we know and we see them. Some examples of these gifts are the sun that rises every morning and sets in the evening. Another gift is the rain. Um, I absolutely love rain, so I decided the other day to read about rain. And I don't know if rain brings awe and wonder in you, but it should. Because what I read is that rain is the dumping of thousands of litres of water that if it were not done in tiny droplets across a space of time, it would just be destructive. Like if you think, if a cloud just came and opened and dumped everything at once, it would destroy our buildings. It would destroy our crops. It would destroy our land, but it doesn't. It comes in small droplets. But further to that, that rain is water in the sky that is not like water in the sky, so it's able to travel through the sky. It's an absolutely incredible thing and it should provoke awe and wonder in us. And it is a gift from God. When you plant a seed in the dirt, it grows out of the dirt into a beautiful flower and it is a gift from God. Um, every morning, I wake up with a husband whom we have weathered storms together whom I have greatly dishonoured and disrespected, whom I have said unkind and hateful things towards at times, yet he has forgiven me and he shows me grace and in our marriage there is such love and that is a gift that God gives us. When I come to church, I stand with a community of people who come from all across the world, who are of different ages, of different backgrounds, and we sing songs of praise to our Lord in unison. And that is a gift from God 
and it provokes awe and wonder in me. So if you have ever yawned at the stars so that you could fawn at the mirror, I will challenge you. If the stars are yours to own, if they're yours to keep, and if you believe they can never be taken away, sure, you can yawn at them. But if you believe that God is sovereign, that God gave us the stars as a gift, and that God could take the stars away this very day, you should know how great and mighty that God is. And you should look at the stars in awe and wonder. So I want to finish by telling you one more fact about the development of kids. And this one, it still blows my mind to this day. So something I absolutely love to do, though I try to do it subtly and not in a creepy way, is watch parents interact with their kids or watch anybody interact with kids. You, You may have noticed that adults tend to do stupid things with kids. Actually, just this morning, I watched somebody at the back who was standing there, not knowing I was watching them, going... They were covering their face and then they were showing a face of great delight and they were doing that because there was a baby in front of them. If they were doing that without a baby in front of them, I would have been like, maybe this person should be called to the office for some counselling this week, you know? But it's normal because they're doing it with a baby in front of them. Um, If you were here last week, Pastor Sean talked about a thing he does where he puts his two-year-old daughter on a table and he steps back. Now... At this point in the story, you're thinking that feels like a stupid thing to do. But then his two-year-old daughter leaps and he catches her. And they experience great delight. And then they do it again. And then they do it again. And then they do it again. There is a scientific reason for why we do these stupid things with children and then why we do them again and again and again. And what science shows is that when we do something that provokes delight in a baby, there are chemicals released in that baby that make the baby respond in a way that provokes delight in you. So when you do that silly thing for the first time and the baby giggles, something in you says, this is fun. I'm gonna keep doing this stupid thing. (laughs) And then the baby giggles again and your brain says, this is really fun. I'm going to keep doing this stupid thing and you do it over and over again. Because when we enjoy a baby, a baby delights in us and it makes us delight in them and this is what they call the cycle of delight. And the reason I really believe in this science is because I think it shows us how God has created us. When God... God is standing over us, telling us that he delights in us every minute of every day. And it's when we respond to his delight by telling him that we also delight in him, that we enter the cycle of delight with our creator. Um, But another really interesting story is there should be some pictures on here. There was a brain scan study done in Romania. There were two children of the same age whose brains were scanned. There's one that's much smaller, and that is the brain of a child who did not receive touch, language, or social interaction. Now, it is through touch, it is through language, and it is through social interaction that we express love. 
So that child had not received love. And what they found, that child was still fed. Okay? That child received their basic needs, but that child did not receive love. And what this study revealed in a really powerful way that has impacted this research across the world is that when a baby doesn't receive love, they do not grow. It is not food and exercise and water alone that makes us grow. It is love. And it is the same with us. When pride interferes with our knowledge of God's delight in us, when pride stops us from knowing that God loves us and from sharing and delighting in him, we cease to grow. So when we focus on ourselves and view ourselves as big, when we value the things that are not what God values, when we, see, when we don't see the good things that God has given us because we're so focused on ourselves, we do not see the delight of God, we do not delight in him, and we do not grow. But if you're sitting there thinking, I see these symptoms in myself, I have done these things or I'm doing them now, I want to tell you something very sad. We cannot remove pride from ourselves because when we begin being successful at removing pride, we get proud about it. It's a vicious cycle. We need Jesus to remove our pride. There is a beautiful story from the book of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader which is by C.S. Lewis, where he talks, uh, where uh, there's a young boy called Eustace, and Eustace is a nasty, irritable, and arrogant boy, and he arrives in Narnia, and even though they are on an incredible adventure to save Narnia, he is so focused on himself, and he finds a dragon's den, and there is treasure, and he takes the treasure, and he puts it on, because he thinks in this world there is no tax, and I can sell this treasure for my benefit. Then he falls asleep and he wakes up and he is a dragon. In his distress, he wants to stop being a dragon because the treasure is now tight on his arm and he cannot remove it. It cuts into his dragon skin. But Aslan comes and brings him to a pool of water and he thinks this pool of fresh water will soothe me, my sore arm where this treasure is hurting me. And Aslan says, yes, it will. But he says, first you must undress to enter the pool. But Eustace says, I'm a dragon. I don't have clothes. And Aslan says, but you must undress. So then he realizes as a dragon, maybe he's like a snake and can shed his skin. So he tears at his skin and he sheds it. And then he walks towards the pool and looks down and realizes there is another layer of dragon skin. He is still a dragon. So he thinks, I'll do it again. I must have a few layers. He tears his dragon skin. He walks towards the pool and there is another layer. And he says to Aslan, how many layers of skin must I remove before I'm undressed? And Aslan said, it must be I who undresses you. But for anybody who knows Narnia, Aslan is a lion. For Aslan to undress Eustace 
Aslan must use his claws. And Eustace says it was the most painful but freeing experience of his life as Aslan undressed him from his dragon skin and he entered the pool where his relief was. Then he exited the pool and Aslan dressed him. Then the final end of that chapter is beautiful. It says, it would be nice and true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses and there were days where he could be tiresome, but those I shall not notice for the cure of his pride had begun. So if you have pride that is in your heart, that is eating from the inside out like a termite, the only way you can remove that pride is through Jesus. And this is why Jesus said to his disciples over and over, the impossible call that you must be like children. An adult cannot be like a child. You cannot go backwards in your development like that. So he said you must be a child because he wanted them to know that utter dependence on him. So I want to invite you today, as I finish now, that if you have pride we have, that is impacting your life, that is causing you to have a telescopic or a microscope or a dimming effect on your life, that we would love to pray for you and we would love for you to experience Jesus. And I want to tell you that Jesus came and he died on the cross, even though he was the creator of the world, even though he holds everything in his hands, he died on the cross because he values you and he values us. And when he died on the cross, he allowed Jesus to see you as a mother sees their baby with pure and utter delight. The only way we will overcome our pride is to know that delight and to know what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father God, um, I pray that when we see children, we would welcome them and we would know we are welcoming you. Father God, I pray that we would be like children so that we can enter your kingdom. I pray that when the children come, we would not focus on the tasks that may be at hand, but we would embrace those children and we would love them and they would love us. And I pray all of these things, Lord, because you would do miraculous works in our heart, in our hearts to remove any pride that blocks us from knowing your good gifts from seeing you with awe and wonder and from knowing our true place before you. Amen.